Hi, I'm Jonathan Lehman, and with me is Mark Dever. Every time I get to one of these moments, I'm like, what's he going to do this time? Lately, he's kind of consistently just on the stare at me. Awkward. Because that's what he does. He keeps it lively for these episodes of Nine Marks Pastors Talk. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with biblical vision and practical resources for building healthy churches. Learn more at ninemarks.org. Is this an act of civil disobedience, Mark, that you're offering right now? <laughs> he's he, for, for the listener, he's shaking his head no. Because that's what I want to talk about. And to bring us into this conversation as well is our friend Bobby Jameson. Hey, Jonathan. I'm bringing us into the conversation? Isn't that well, your job? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're joining us for this conversation. Happy to join. Mark, Are we if, doing this because we're recording this during days when the government is telling us to stay at home? Exactly. And we're, we got a lot of Christians wondering, like, really? Just yesterday, you and I had two separate conversations with two separate groups of pastors. And in both of those conversations, independently, separately, one of them said, what about civil disobedience when we think we should gather, but the government is saying, no, 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 you can't gather. And a third time yesterday, I got that conversation with somebody else, too, asking that question. An email somebody sent me. So, yeah, strange, strange times call for strange. Well, part of that, I think, just shows how basic human friendships, mm-hmm. uh, our, our desire to gather as a church, uh, our desire to love others and help them and see them in order to do that and be helped by them. All of these things, the, the, the ways uh, our various state and local governments are asking us to respond to our current uh, health challenge with this coronavirus is striking at things that are very close to the heart, not only of traditional social interaction, mm-hmm. but of, of our faith, of, of how we understand we are supposed to follow Jesus, and that's together. Yeah. Uh, let, let, me, let me start a little higher level here, and then we'll bring it down to the ground, okay? Highest level, are church and state friends or adversaries? Sure. Uh, I'm just thinking it could be helpful to put a timestamp on the conversation. It's April 30th today, right? Just mm-hmm. things are changing quickly. Yeah, sure. Um, our church, 2020. Is, our church and state friends. Uh, they're both or adversaries. They're both ordained by God. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that the authority that the civil magistrate has comes from God. Uh, Jesus ordained the church. Um, so they're both institutions deriving from God's own authority that he gives to people to exercise. Um, they're, they should be friends in principle. Of course, they aren't always. Um, I think that sometimes, uh, well, I'll just say, yeah, they, they, they should be friends. I'm grateful, uh, for the extent to which they are friends in America, not to say there aren't any challenges or problems. Uh, but I think we should be thankful for, uh, the degree of good, uh, that various levels of government do national state, uh, city government, other types of governmental authorities. Mm-hmm. I think we should, this, this is a, is a time to reflect gratefully on the way that those various levels of government serve the whole body of the population. Mark, I heard you in an earlier conversation refer to a Romans 13 perspective, but also a Revelation 13 perspective. What did you have in mind? Yeah, government can be absolutely beastly, mm-hmm. uh, as is represented in, in the book of Revelation and in the condemnation of, of Babylon there. We think of uh, the prayer that the apostles prayed in Acts 4 when they were summarizing what had been done by governments, uh, and they're saying in Acts four twenty seven. In this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, governmental figure, 
and Pontius Pilate, Roman governmental figure, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Uh, and what they were doing, on the one hand, was preordained by God. True, it was his plan, it was for our, our salvation. But it was also raging against God. It was, uh, they crucified Jesus. Yeah, so too. So the cross itself stands as a symbol of the beastliness of government, of government in its utter rebellion against God, every bit as knowingly as Eve in the garden. So on the one hand, you have Pharaoh at the time of Joseph protecting God's people. On the other hand, you have Pharaoh at the time of Moses destroying the seed, seeking to destroy the seed, seeking to destroy God's people. So we get both, right? Uh, which brings us to the topic of civil disobedience. Uh, just a quick theology of civil disobedience from either of you. What do you how do we, what, how do we think do you, about that? What do you think? Didn't you get a master's in <laughs> socialism at London School of well, Economics? I'll give, I'll give a Devarian proof text, and then Jonathan can give a Lehman-esque you know, elaboration. Systematic theology. There we go. Yeah. Here's a proof text. Uh, Acts 5, 29. Them well. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, when is that provision invoked? Because Paul says to obey the government. Uh, and I think the, the tidiest summary that I've heard and that I find helpful is, is to say that uh, civil disobedience is warranted when the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. I think those are the two categories that prompt us uh, to, to that, that, that warrant that statement. We must obey God rather than men. I'm sorry, say that again. Uh, forbids what God commands or commands, commands what, God what God forbids. forbids. That's how I've not heard it, but like, that's, that's very helpful. So both, uh, they're both in Daniel, right? Uh, nobody can pray yeah, except right. to the king. Yeah. So Daniel goes on and keeps on praying. Even So what God com commands has been forbidden. And then also uh, commanding what God forbids, worship, uh, the, statue. worship the statue. So they're, right. they're both there in Daniel, those two examples. Right. Well, let's, let's, let's go with that, uh, commanding him not to pray. Can the government command us not to gather? Of course. How is it? But we have to gather to be a church. It's commanding us not to gather. Isn't that like commanding us not to pray? Well, help me understand. I think it depends on the nature of the command. We've got brothers and sisters around the world that cannot meet as they would like to because mm -hmm. of the governments that they're under. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think the government of Saudi Arabia or the government of North Korea would much appreciate 100 Christians wanting to gather. Mm-hmm. So then what, what are our brothers and sisters to do? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think in certain times like that, uh, in Scripture, I think you're given the option to flee from one city to another. Uh, Paul, if you look in the book of Acts, seems like he ministers almost as long as he can in a place until he begins to encounter opposition. And then for prudential reasons, he goes elsewhere. So I think we can flee from governmental persecution. And I think we can also um, try to work in ways that will be faithful to obeying the gospel commands, even if the government themselves doesn't like what we're doing. And there we get into civil disobedience. We, we need to be willing to take the consequences the government doles out. Right. But in this moment right now, you guys have both been complying with the governmental requirement not to gather. And are you doing that because you happen to agree with it? And you're making that decision on your own authority as a church, or are you actually in submission to government in not meeting? I would say the latter, but I'm curious to know what you guys think. 
Well, I don't think we – yeah, there's a bunch of ways we could answer that. I think the fundamental answer is we're submitting to the government. We see it as a legitimate restriction. By the government. By the government. That's right. That would take quite a high burden of proof to overturn, right. in which circumstances, as Mark said, we'd need to be willing to face whatever civil consequences there were. Um, so, yeah, I, I think we, I think I'd see it as an act of submission. Yeah, if the government is supposed to be acting for the welfare of the people and if we think that there is a disease around that is spreading – Killing people. Yeah. Uh, and that it's doing it because of the way we are interacting with each other naturally. Not that we're doing anything wrong morally, but it's just the, the way we naturally interact is uh, the means by which this virus spreads. And this is the anti-church virus. I mean, that's exactly what we have right now. Yeah. It's that you cannot gather virus. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, see, the, 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 way I, the way I see it, in part of what makes this so difficult is on the one hand, absolutely the government has a claim to say, uh, please don't gather right now because their job is to preserve life. At the very heart of government authority is, I think Genesis 9, 5, and 6, is to preserve life. And insofar as there's a society-wide pandemic, as you said, for them to say, hey, everyone, not just the church, but everyone, we can't gather right now. They have a legitimate claim on that territory. At the same time, what makes it so challenging is the church. It's like you have— you have, you have two circles, and right here, the two circles are overlapping, and we're standing in that area of overlap because I think the right to association, in some ways, you might call it a human right or a natural right, and then certainly is a prerequisite to the religious right to gather and worship God. So the church has a legitimate claim on this territory, too, right? We have a right to gather and worship God. Well, so, when you say a right, if, if we are back in the first century, mm-hmm. we certainly have an obligation to gather. But whether or not we have a right, that's to me that sounds like political governmental language. Yeah, I would and say there's certainly in the Roman Empire was no such right necessarily mm-hmm. under all jurisdictions at all times for any religious group that wanted to be able to meet to meet. That was not the case. Rights varied gigantically from ruler to ruler and time to time and place to place. They didn't have a legal right, that that's true. But don't create ought and is. They ought to have had such a right. And just because they didn't have a right doesn't mean they don't have. And so what I would say is obligations from God create rights. So if I am obligated before God to do X, I then have a right to do X in a way that you do not have the right to take away from me. You see? So I would say on the one hand, the government has an obligation to save life, right? And therefore, it has a right to say to a society for, let's just say, a time, you can't gather. By the same token, I am obligated and therefore possess a right to gather with other Christians. And so that's why I'm saying right here you have what's difficult is two overlapping circles, and we're standing in that space in the middle, which kind of brings us to the question we were receiving yesterday, Mark. Will a time come? Pastors are asking the question, will a time come when we say, listen, it's been three months, it's been six months, it's been however long. We're going to do it even if the government is still saying no. How do we answer that question? How would you answer it, Jonathan? <laughs> you, you specifically told us before the interview to ask you that. I did not. You did. I said you can feel free to ask me what do I think on things generally. What do you think, Jonathan? I think, as to use a phrase from Bobby a few moments ago, it's a high burden of proof. I think we should defer as long as we can. I think if the number one, if the government is so, as long as what the government is saying, t- even to our lay eyes, appears justifiable, reasonable as measures to protect human life. Yes, it's like they still have a legitimate claim here. They still have grounds here. 
right? And so now if they are specifically, and I think I've heard you say this, Mark, if they're uh, targeting us specifically, like, hey. Yeah, if they say can, high school basketball games can happen and movies can happen, exactly. but churches can't gather. Exactly. That, that, that's, that's something different. But let's suppose it continues to remain uniform. I'd say we have some obligation to continue to seek to obey and honor the government wherever we can and find ways around it. It's a part of loving our neighbors. Exactly. So if they say 50, well, then let's try to keep it under 50. If they say 100, let's try to keep it under 100. Um, there are other ways we can we can do both. Now, is it conceivable in my mind a time would come when we just decided to disobey straight up and gather? I don't know. If this persisted for a year or two or three, what do you got? I mean, that, that's where I get a little honestly fuzzy in my thinking. Thoughts on that? Well, I I think um, it's like in Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley's book on conscience. They talk about how a, a properly informed conscience uh, has to include both a right interpretation of Scripture yeah. and a right interpretation of stuff outside Scripture, whatever whatever the thing is that you're considering. Um, you know, this this genre of music or this beverage or whatever it might be. You need to understand its its properties, its consequences, its effects. And so, you know, there's a sense in which anybody in a position of uh, leadership in an institution, including just a member of a church, because we all have authority, you know, shared with the congregation, there's a sense in which we're all playing catch up, trying to understand this particular disease, uh, as well as the nature of pandemics and how Mm -hmm, they affect mm -hmm. society more broadly. So I do think it's... Uh, it would be easy to form a judgment um, based on only a kind of superficial acquaintance with with the disease, how it's affecting our society and so on, because we're so rightly invested in gathering as a church, because we're so rightly wanted to be obedient to Scripture, that there's kind of a – it's easy to set the burden of proof as this is so important to us, this can't possibly be – warrant shelving something this important. And I think think there is a proper kind of intellectual humility that that – should go into uh, studying up on the nature of what's what is happening. What's what's the nature of the disease? How easily does it spread? How well has it been contained? And I, that just is going to make me not 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 that I could never see the government as overreaching in a morally culpable way. Not that I wouldn't have categories for that, but it, it at least makes me deferential toward, uh, like Mark said, so long as this seems a reasonable response to cur- uh, the, the sort of current uh, health-related threat. Right. Um, I suppose I'm I'm commending a posture of a slight humility and deference toward that. Towards government. We, cer- we certainly yeah. see individuals doing this all the time. We don't question it. If someone has, has a highly communicable disease, mm-hmm. leprosy. And they're in a in an ancient society, and there's just, there's no way to ameliorate this, and and therefore they don't gather with the assembly for years. Mm-hmm. We don't understand them to be in disobedience. We understand that in God's providence, they've been hindered uh, from obeying that general command. I do think that's an important comment, Mark. That can alleviate consciences helpfully in the sense that a legitimate government order uh, based on a warranted response of a, of a threat to human well-being, protecting life, um, that creates a kind of natural inability on our part that the Lord is not holding us accountable. We're, we're not sort of racking up a tally of sins by not gathering week by week. Uh, it's, it's simply a disability imposed on all of us uh, akin to a physical, a physical disability itself. So what I hear both of you saying is that potentially this could be indefinite and that it could be that the church in Indefinitely submits to the government's requirement not to gather moving yeah. forward almost we're, in perpetuity. Well, uh, that's that's where I, I think 
Uh, to contrast the situation, for instance, with, with situations that we would be familiar with of churches under persecution, facing tightening restrictions, yep, yep, and, and yep. then choosing uh, choosing to split up into smaller churches so as to have a lower profile, I think the difference is, do you anticipate being able to resume regular operations? Mm-hmm. You know, it's only at the point where um, perhaps... Perhaps that you simply don't envision how you could continue to operate. You know, this church with 200 people, we really, you know, under persecution, we really need to get it under 100 to be able to fit into smaller buildings. Um, the difference being, do we think this is temporary or not? Uh, and within being temporary, do, do we think this has the, the potential to drag on into a kind of uh, a situation where it's perhaps more prudent? There, I would say, not necessarily to simply stop gathering, uh, but for churches to sell divide and subdivide in a formal sense. Yeah. Uh, whatever intermediate steps we, we might anticipate of smaller gatherings, informal gatherings, not, mm. not gathering the whole church yeah. together, however churches decide to do that. I would say, you know, to, to, to think way ahead when you use that kind of language of indefinite, that's where I would say if that kind of prospect is on the table, you need to restructure. We might see major cell division, not, yeah, simply yeah, yeah, not yeah, gathering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but, but cell division in a way that maintains submission to the government. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, just one, one reason I think that's under pressure right now, we were getting those questions with those other pastors yesterday, is because we can imagine in an increasingly secularly minded world, Religion being less prominent now than it was a hundred years ago here in DC when the Spanish flu closed churches for a month. Mm-hmm. There was great pressure to reopen the churches. And I assume social pressure that was both given and received and felt more heavily than that same pressure would be given or received and felt today. And so as we continue forward in a time of the government telling us not to meet, we can have those nagging doubts in our minds, but they really think we're less important than alcohol stores. They, they really think we're less important than sporting events. They, they really don't seem to have a lot of motivation, at least my government, wherever I am, right. uh, my state, my county. They don't seem – my country. They don't seem to have a lot of motivation for a church to be able to Making freely provision. meet. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the, the, now, maybe this is only making Mark's point even more. Depends how you look at it. But at the very least, the D.C. mayor uh, and the kind of commit commission for considering how to reopen D.C. Uh, has an individual, a member of that committee, whose remit includes houses of worship. And in some of the surveys and stuff they've put out, they've included material on sort of how has this uh, impacted? How anxious are you to be able to return to your house of worship? Things like that. So it's it's at, at least it's um on the list, although that's perhaps complementary to what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Given how perhaps how low it is on the list, yeah. but but I think your point also has the inverse effect, Mark, of arguing in the opposite direction. Namely, they don't value us; they don't see the value of us. You, you know, you yourself said at the beginning, if if we agree that the government has a reasonable, reasonable claim, let's suppose more and more members of your church and or fellow leaders are saying they don't have a reasonable claim because this they are hyping up this. Uh, uh, predicament. It's just not that bad. I think people are overreacting. I think they're paranoid. Yes, we should gather, even at the cost of disobeying. Um, how do you shepherd congregation members and fellow leaders coming from that perspective on this? I think the government doesn't have a reasonable claim, even if they agree with everything we've said so far. They just think it's an overreaction because they don't value us. Now, now shepherd me. What Help me out. Well, I, I think I first want to see uh, unity among our elders, mm-hmm. and then it'll be the elders' job to shepherd the church. So I wouldn't directly, without having consulted, if, if we do have a plurality of elders in our church, we do, I wouldn't want to directly 
make that decision and try to shepherd people in that way, apart from making sure our elders are together in the way we're thinking about good, it. Good, good, okay. So how are you shepherding your elders? You got three of them who are just like, Mark, we've got to meet. This is yeah. not reasonable. They're yeah. overreacting. Yeah. Well, it's one thing for you to have a kind of armchair, Monday morning quarterback. I think they're overreacting. Mm-hmm. I think looking back, history won't be this well. It's another thing for them to say like, oh, no, this is serious subversion of our rights. This is like the it, – it, it's like the time when uh, the Americans revolted against the British government, you know, for, that gave us the American Revolution. It is that kind of mm-hmm. scale of thing that we, we need to at least begin to employ civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. Well, then you have, to, you have to have that conversation on the eldership. You have to think it through like, okay, what are the criteria that would lead us to do, to do that? And in this particular case, the kind of things you're talking about, meeting, uh, all right, let's say that the elders become persuaded and then we open it up and we persuade not all of our congregation, but let's say 600 people come back together next Sunday morning. How will the community around us that we're trying to reach with gospel view that when, when they can look askance at you for not wearing a mask in the store? If you're actually choosing to be in the room with hundreds of people for two or three hours and sing a lot, which is supposed to be one of the most, you know, because you're projecting your voice, supposed to be one of the most conferring of the disease things you could do other than physical contact. It, it would look to to people around us like we're being callous and that we're being callous uh, not just with ourselves and our own lives, but with them because we could cause the disease to spread uh, and, you know, get closer to them and where they are. So, yeah. So, Mark, you're saying that's a kind of consideration that even if you have – an elder or a number of elders who even view it at that higher level of this warrants civil disobedience, that's the type of consideration you're going to want to bring to bear in that conversation. Witness of the congregation. Right. It's, it's about more than how I might read this as a political philosophical judgment. Uh, that's only one ingredient that's in making right. a decision that's going to have corporate ramifications, sort of lasting ramifications with the church's reputation. So this is yet this is example 1,462 of what somebody has to be able to disagree on and still be an elder together. And if you can't t- take your brother elder disagreeing with you on this point, then this has become an identifying mark of who you are. So you're not only believer Baptist as opposed to infant Baptist, you know, and Protestant as opposed to Roman in your understanding of grace, you're now also meet civil disobedience right here and right now. That's right, on church. this particular issue. And so this particular issue becomes a non-negotiable. Okay, so to sum up, and I'm going to take a, a quick turn, sum up, you guys are saying you're agreeing with me. Government has a legitimate claim here, number one. Correct. Number two, yes, there is some tension because churches do need and are obligated and have a right to gather. Yep. But we're going to defer as long as we possibly can. As long as we think is reasonable and right. As long as it's reasonable and right. Both for the sake of honoring government, submitting to government, and for the sake of our evangelistic witness. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a summary of where I think we all are. Okay, here's, here's, here's a turn to another legal church matter. What about marriages? We don't have to spend as long here, but you have a you have a couple in your church who are engaged. They were going to get married on April. What is today? Thirtieth. Thirtieth. On May first, tomorrow, they don't have a license. They don't have. They have the license. Fine. That's that's. There's no challenge there. But they don't have a license. They've been engaged for three months, four months, five months, six months. They want to get married. Pastor, can't you just do it? I don't have a license, but can I do it? What do you do? Well, we thankfully, we've been spared this scenario so far since Virginia is still issuing licenses. Uh, you know, so here in D.C., it's just across the river, folks can get married in Virginia. 
Um, and we've had that happen with a number of cases yeah. where the Coles had not planned to do that, but then they just switched their plans around. That's so right. DC residents up. can go to Virginia and get that. Yes. Yeah. Oh. As long as as long as the wedding is then performed in, in Virginia. Virginia. So there's an easy answer. Anybody just fly to Virginia for, for us as pastors. Oh. There is. I'm sure it's not just Virginia, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for us, that's the easy answer that is uh, happening right now. For a, a brother I, in a state I, or district I, where that's not. I assume though it's unusual that the district in Maryland both have their. I, I would think if closed a marriage bureau is going to be closed, it's going to be closed for a week while they sort something out. Yeah. To leave it closed indefinitely is a little bizarre. Although I think in the UK, there's a, it's officially shut down in terms of any official issuing weddings until August. But I don't know if there's some other type of provision or communication like, hey, if it's, if it's performed by somebody authorized, we'll backdate it. Well, it may have something to do with their prime ministers having a baby out of wedlock. I mean, I, I, think, uh, I think marriage is not held in the esteem that the uh, – the, the the British people used to hold it in. If you look at the teachings of the Church of England, the established church. Okay, but before before we we solicit more British hate mail, uh, I I love Britain. No, I agree. Uh, just let's just try to focus in on this one question. You're if, trying if, to make us answer if, the if question. If I'm if I'm in a place where they're closed down, can you marry them without state authority? I and am let them happily go off on their honeymoon. Just to play nicely. I am going to very tentatively offer an opinion. I want to qualify it to death. Uh, but if there is no – if the competent local authority is shut down and you have no access and no recourse yes. to them, if you are already an authorized uh, agent of the state in that regard, you know, you, you have an official authorization to perform weddings, though not the individual license – I would say even then, talk to any government official you can to try to get some type of informal, hey, we understand, that's fine, we'll sort out the details. Even if it's not an official word, I, I, somebody in this, uh, the circuit court, the county clerk, whoever you can talk to, uh, you know, I would say try to get any kind of unofficial word from the government. And in the end, if you could not, I, I'll just speak for my own conscience. I think my conscience would permit me to. Uh, understanding that I, I, I personally here in D.C. have been authorized by the government to do that. The government itself is, in a sense, incapacitated, unavailable. Uh, I'm not intending to go outside their legal authorization. I'm I'm making this in the, the context of a community that would keep help the couple keep their vows and so on. I would appeal to the government as soon as they reopen. So tentatively, I personally could see a way through to doing that. And of course, there's pastoral considerations. Can it be prudent to delay the marriage? But sometimes it's not. There might be all sorts of other factors that come to, come to bear to make it genuinely prudent to keep a wedding date or even move it up. Just I agree with everything you just said. Well, let me ask Mark. Just about no, the little, but I do. Little, I believe you. But You're going to try to drive a wedge in between us. <laughs> no, I'm going to try to – right now I'm going to try to drive a wedge between you and you. Okay. Ten years ago, I was performing a – Wedding out of state. Does this have anything to do with Boris Johnson? <laughs> if it doesn't, then Mark doesn't want to talk about it. <laughs> it was a destination wedding, which we can have conversations about. But anyways, it was, it was out of state. I went down there. The couple showed up the day of the wedding and said to me, oh, by the way, we didn't have a chance to go get our license. That's very different. And so I called you and I said, uh, what do I do? You said, they have got to get it or you should not do the wedding. We submit to the that's, state. That's very different. Okay, so help help the, us the understand the difference. The, yeah, the difference is between the churches, the, the, the rather the state's incapacity, and the individuals simply failing to act according to what the state says they should do. Okay. The first, the state's incapacity, is what Bobby was dealing with. It's a situation you originally brought to us mm -hmm. uh, for this question. The, the example you gave from ten years ago is where the couple simply failed to do what they should have done. Mm -hmm. Very different. 
And Jonathan, you know, I'm I'm seeing the authority kind of in an extreme situation as uh, I've been granted this general authority, though not a specific one. Nor, you know, it normally requires the specific one of this license for this marriage at this this time. But there is at least a government authorization in, of the general scenario that, yeah, the, you call the phone and the, uh, you, you call the state and the state doesn't answer. And just to answer the nagging question some people might have right now. About Boris? No. About who has the authority to marry. Some people don't think the state has the authority to marry. They think the church does. And just that's another conversation. But let me just clarify for the record. Bobby, Mark, and I all believe that there is perhaps some flexibility in Scripture. But if it falls anywhere, most clearly it probably falls to the state for the sake of inheritance rights, for the sake of children, for the sake of protection of of those kinds of things. Uh and though, no, it doesn't necessarily have – one could imagine kind of a pre-civilization state where it's, it's, it's otherwise. Nonetheless, ordinarily, we accord it to the state, and, and insofar as we all have done that, that is the way to do it. And the state can then authorize whomever the state authorizes, be it a pastor or somebody else, which is why the church has been involved, at least in recent years, decades, well, centuries. In ma- the, marriages – predate just about everything else in Scripture as far as an institution. Right. It certainly predates the church. Right. And marriages today take place that, that are we would all three see as legitimate that are not among Christians and don't take place in churches. Right. Right. Well said. So you might dispute that. That's fine. We can have that other conversation. I'm just clarifying for this conversation. That's, that's where the three of us are coming that's from. That's correct. And because we're in the West, there's the, there's the background of Roman Catholicism back there that teaches this is a sacrament. sacrament. And that would see their authorities fundamentally supplanting the states when it comes to uh, weddings and marriages. Yeah. To put it another way, it's it's a, it's a creation ordinance more than it is a church there we ordinance. Go. Yeah. I think we'd say. Okay. So your your bottom line was, yes, you'd make an exception. Exhaust all options. Talk to anybody you can. Yes, make an exception. And you agree with all of that? I Mark. do agree. Guys, anything else in this whole church state thing that you're seeing in this pre- present pandemical moment that? We didn't cover – need to cover Gathering Again. I think they could read uh, your book, How the Nations Rage. Yep. Uh, now out in paperback. For That's a larger right. uh, political background. And I haven't read it yet, but I'm looking forward to reading you and Andy Nacelli's little booklet on uh, loving, How do I love? loving Christians you disagree with. Because this is a whole other field of of uh, disagreement that is more than political, but it involves politics, certainly. Yeah. But will your political pre-commitments come roaring into into play here? So I would I would commend your booklet. Having read Andy and read you, trusting and I, I've read the booklet. It, it's 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 applicable. You all didn't have this situation in mind when you no. wrote it, but it fits differing visions of what to do with this perfectly. Well, I've been repeating this in different domains, Mark, and I, I got this from you. Every Christian at the moment wants to ask, "What do I think is right?" Whether we're talking about staying in or we're talking about who we vote for, we all want to ask who is right. But I think a mature Christian also asks the question. What does Romans 14 require of me in terms of forbearance and allowance of others to come to different decisions of what's right than I've come to? So yes, ask the first question, what's right, but also ask that second question. And uh, you've instructed me in, in that way, and I've been grateful for that. Guys, thanks for the conversation. Thank, Thank you. you.